0: And our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures. Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes.
1: We hope that you will get out there too and have a Photog adventure of your own.
0: It's episode 107 and welcome back patrons. Welcome back everybody to the Photog Adventures podcast. Brendan and I have done a nice back and forth with Aaron Sick. Brendan's here. Brendan gone. he's... Aaron's here, and now it's back to Aaron. So we were no Brendan, no Aaron, now no Brendan, and I am back to this morning with a little bit of the flu in the the rear view window. I have passed the worst of it, but man, the flu is just a beast, and it has made me... (sighs) <sighs> I'm gonna be so tired, so tired, but we're back and we're excited to not be alone today. For today's interview, we have another night sky astrophotographer extraordinaire, a guy that Kirk Kai's recommended very highly, and I'm excited to get to know alongside with you guys. He's an astronomy author. He has written magazine articles. He's a photographer of the night sky. You can catch him on plenty of places like National Geographic, Time, NBC News, CBS News. He's had astronomy picture of the day featuring something that he has has captured he's been on universe today which we talked about with Matthew Newman and so this guy I'm excited to learn more about him and Alan Dyer you join us now but where are you from it says something here about Winnipeg Edmonton Calgary Canada where are you located Alan
1: Hey Aaron, uh, I'm uh, I'm in Alberta, in, Alberta. Uh, in southern Alberta, uh, outside of Calgary. Uh, I mean, people may know the city of Calgary, but I don't live in the city. I live uh, uh, east of Calgary in a rural southern Alberta, and uh, oh, a awesome. uh, great spot uh, for being fairly close to some great scenic. Uh, landscapes, the badlands and the mountains and the like for doing nightscape photography.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anyone familiar with this side of the United States, the Interstate 15, you go from Utah right up into that area, probably head straight to your home. Do you pass by close enough with I-15?
1: That's right. I-15 crosses the border at Coots and Sweetgrass and becomes (laughs) uh, Highway 4 or whatever it is and comes right up towards me. That's the route I take when I go down to Arizona, New Mexico.
0: Well, right on. Well, it is awesome to have you on here. I'm so glad that there's someone out there who is doing this as much as you are, and I still haven't heard everything about you. So I'm excited to learn with everybody. Can you fill in some of the holes of your background that I never got to when I was reading through all the stuff that you've done?
1: Well, I've been doing night photography since since the days of film it's it's hard to imagine <laughs> uh we tried to do it with film in the 80s and 90s or whatever with you know high speed ectochrome and gosh whatever it was you know 1600 1600- a speed ectochrome and wow. you shot and you shot and uh, and you hope for the best. And you had tables of exposures that you knew from experience worked, because of course you didn't see the result till days later. Right? Um, it was it was pretty tough to do. You got some ne- neat shots, and there's a handful I have still in the library that are somewhat unique. I still hold on to. But uh, doing this sort of Milky Way nightscapes, so, though, boy, that was really impossible. Uh, the film just wasn't sensitive enough Uh, and the whole digital cameras in the 2000s just revolutionized and really started this whole field of nightscape photography particularly milky way nightscapes uh, with no moon and capturing the milky way that was unheard of before
0: wow it is something we know it's new but you just don't take You just take it for granted. You don't realize how new it is. It's newer than the internet. It's newer than the (laughs) internet, the actual ability to capture that Milky Way core. So when you say you're using 600 speed, am I correct in understanding that that's like saying 600 ISO?
1: Um yeah it, it was it was typically like Agfa 1600 was a popular film and Fuji Fuji had uh uh sets of various uh slide and and print films as well and and maybe up to 800 uh, yeah, there was the Fuji Color 800 or something like that, and 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 you could push that to 1600. 3200 was almost unheard of. There was one or two films that were as fast as that, where you could push, and but the grain was awful. Oh, and <laughs> so 1600 speed was high speed back then. You know, now we're now we're shooting at 64, or even 12,000. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, with the to digital cameras and and getting Milky Ways, heck, uh, in you know, in just a few seconds. Uh, that's amazing.
0: <laughs> it, this kind of photography that you would take around 1600, what was your typical shot? Obviously, it wasn't the Milky Way core, but what were you capturing in the night sky?
1: Well, the the thing that was really most, uh, uh, most possible that you get some nice results of would be moonlit nightscapes oh, okay. where you, you had the moon now and so you're doing star trails of 20-30 minutes long perhaps single exposure star trails uh, or short exposures uh, in 20 to 40 seconds uh, sort of not trailing but the, there was now enough moonlight to l- illuminate the, the landscape and those, those could turn out reasonably well uh, but even so the, the right exposure was still a bit of a guess learned from experience because is it a full moon or is it a gibbous moon, or is a quarter moon? It changes by several stops, uh, you know, depending <laughs> on the moon phase. Is the moon low in altitude or is it high? Is it in some haze? Well, that's cutting a stop of light down. And so wow. um, it was all by guessing by golly for uh, <laughs> judging exposures. So you shot lots of different exposures and hope for the best. Uh, uh, and so those work pretty well. Uh, The moonlit nightscapes and star trails. You know, there was was a little time when digital cameras first came in when people were saying, oh, film is still the way to do star trails. Uh, You can't (laughs) do star trails with with digital cameras because, you know, long several-minute exposures uh, would be much too noisy. And in the early days, that was probably the case. Uh, And so film had its last bastion of of possibility of doing these long star trails. <laughs> until someone invented, you know, stacking, uh, where you could just take a bunch of short exposures and stack them in Photoshop with the light and blend mode, and all of a sudden there was an hours worth of star trails with you know several hundred shots. So, oh well, <laughs> we can hey. do it digitally now. We oh, don't need film. Oh at well, all.
0: <laughs> see a film. Sorry, your last bastion has been destroyed. Yeah. Now digital era has taken over. Now in the end. It isn't a loss or a win, right? It's a win for everyone because Milky Way photography is just spectacular. When was the first time you had a camera quality enough to see the core in a way that you were impressed?
1: Uh oh I I can remember the night. Um <laughs> I had a, uh, a a Canon 300D Rebel whatever it was called in the, in those 2004. It was the first kind of affordable DSLR. There were DSLRs up to that point but they were I don't know, $1000, $2000, they're pretty high end and they were like 6 megapixels. And oh, um and I had the 300D which was the first kind of affordable digital SLR from Canon and i took it to a star party i actually talked to mentioned this story in the sort of opening pages of my ebook uh but not with that actual picture um and and did an exposure by well it was the star party so it's held in summer and there's no moon so it was just starlight um and shooting towards the galactic core with the telescopes in the foreground and all of a sudden this Milky Way pops up you know in a 20 second exposure whatever it was and and the grass is green I can see the green grass <laughs> illuminated by starlight it would be dark and black on film shots I thought that's it digital's it uh, and th- the next week I packed up most of my film cameras uh, Nikons it was that I'd been loyally using for two or three <laughs> decades and uh, took it to the used camera store and say here what can you give me for this you oh know, wow uh, <laughs> they I kept can... a couple but uh, <laughs> I still have a couple of film <laughs> cameras but uh, uh, that was it that was that was the night um, that I just said "Well, oh, this is uh, amazing what this you can too see amazing.
0: here now <laughs> we really are lucky to, for those of us who came into this in the last few years, we're so really crazy lucky to have yes. what we have today. And you yes. mentioned your ebook. I do want to go into it, guys, because you have an opportunity with another author's ebook to give you a lot of great tips for your Milky Way photography. And we're going to get to a few of those tips here today, Alan. But before we go into some of your Milky Way photography processing, I want to talk about the night sky. You're an overall astronomer, and I yeah. love looking at what you have here. First off, you have a fantastic telescope that you're sitting there all hooked up next to with a nice, I'm assuming a nice EQ mount is what this is with a giant counterweight. And it is just, I'm not sure if this is the same one on your page of the About Alan Dyer page. I don't know if it's the same one that you captured the Horsehead Nebula. But man, the Horsehead Nebula on the cover of your Backyard Astronomy's Guide is so gorgeous. Oh, is that's
1: not my picture on parents the cover of did that, that one? book. Yes. No, I can't take credit for that. Um, um, that's one of the top deep sky astrophotographers. Uh, we used his picture for that front cover. Ooh, you uh, it. I do some of that deep sky photography uh, for, for certain. And uh, uh, where we're talking about shooting through telescopes yeah. and, and taking long exposures through telescopes of uh, several minutes each, and then you stack those and you, you're guiding it. And so, yeah, I've got uh, – I forget which, which telescope I'm depicted with there because I have many. <laughs> so And several mounts and the like. And uh, so I do a lot of that as well. Uh, again, living in the country, I can kind of do that from the backyard here. Yeah. Uh, but often you do want to go to some very dark sites and then you set up for several hours worth of exposures, tracking the sky with very sophisticated equipment. Um, and the deep sky photography is a lot of fun. But it's it's another step up in complexity and involvement. Very, uh, the especially- night nice sky photography is, uh, is easier into some in some respects but more demanding in terms of you got to get to some great locations and that's uh, that's what uh, demands the work more is uh, is the scenery uh, that's a now, great not point. just the sky You
0: do have to get out there and go to places with great skies where you could fight through a little light pollution with these long exposures tracked with a telescope that you can get away with some things. I know that my beginning, I got my beginning using a telescope and wanting to see the night sky through the telescope and then hooking a camera on the back end of it and trying to capture some stuff and specifically a comet. I have spent... Hours, hours outside with the camera and a telescope. Okay, I think I found it. The The part where the telescope flips the imagery, and so when you're looking through with the view of a, of a targeting scope and you find where you're trying to look, and then looking through my Nexstar 6SE camera, my uh, telescope that I have a go to mount on, that thing would be. It would get me close to where I want to go, but not perfect. And I'd spend time looking through it saying, okay, have I seen the, t- I seen the comet? No, no, I haven't seen the comet. Look more. And this was a comet that was very faint in the night sky. And I was going through just like a grid system of capture look at it with my iPad because I had my iPad connected to a camera that I had at the time, the Canon 70D, and I would see if I would see anything. I wasn't sure if I ever saw the comment until suddenly, boom, there it was, between all of the white and black, I finally got an orb of green, this crazy orb of green through that that r 6 SE, And I'm noticing this picture that you have posted from last night with the orb of green of Comet Wirtanen. Can you give some people who don't know about Comet 46P any information about the time that it's going to be in the night sky? And I want to ask you... Where were you when you captured this? Is this a backyard? This looks like a pretty yeah, forested just, area.
1: Uh, yeah, that was a shot from last night. I just posted. Well, last night uh, that I shot last night from the backyard, uh, looking south um, of the comet, with a thirty-five millimeter lens uh, on a Canon sixty. So it's a fairly wide-angle scene, uh, and so uh, more like a naked eye uh, scene. And okay. you can, but you can see it there is a very distinct, as you say, green or cyan spot yeah. in the sky. And uh, this is Comet Wirtanen, 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 46P is his catalog number. It's the brightest comet we've had in our sky for, well, I don't know, a few years, and the brightest one we're expecting. uh, for the next little while, uh, some some uh, often they discover a comet with without much notice and be gets quite bright. But of the ones we know about that are coming in the next two years, uh, none are 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 ex- expected to get as good as uh, Wirtanen will be in the next two weeks. In the next two weeks until mid December our prime prime time uh it's closest to the earth on december 15th i think it is and closest to the sun just a couple days before that so that makes it particularly bright in our sky but that's relatively speaking in (laughs) terms of it may be bright enough just to see with the naked eye Uh, but uh photographically it'll be easy but it's certainly not going to be obvious or spectacular to the naked eye by any means. But it's an, it'll be an interesting photographic challenge, particularly around the 15th and 16th of December when it'll be sitting just below the Pleiades star cluster, Ooh, which cool. are e- very easy to find. It, it moves up from the south w- where it is now and, and heads up through Taurus and uh, in between the Hyades star cluster and the Pleiades star cluster. So any kind of uh, even a normal lens that covers that whole part of the sky, you'll get this bright green blob in, in your pictures Uh, in in mid-month and after that it gets up a little higher and stays in our sky for some time but the moon comes up then the moon is already beginning to interfere in mid-December the the waxing moon so it's moonlight will start to wash out the sky certainly by uh, the end of December or or, uh, third week of December so Christmas time it's going to be almost a full moon so that's going to make it really tough to get the comet.
0: Well, knowing the awesome photography nerds that are listening to this inter- interview right now and myself, we are not going to feel like two weeks is not enough time. We have lots of time. And this is easy. I mean, you can capture this just by looking outside, capturing through camera, get away from some light pollution, but not. you don't have to be too far. I can tell that you're out somewhere further, but, but the brightness of this, you will notice it in the sky as long as you're seeing the stars in the area because this green orb the cyan green orb shows up. I should mention that it's not a comet trail of, you know, you're not Halley's Comet-like awesomeness where you're going to see any sort of trailing. It's just a green dot that looks almost like some weird sensor noise happened on your camera that never has happened before, but it's an actual comet showing up in your shot. Do you have any photographic advice for people who are considering capturing this alan what should they bring what should they do to make sure that they capture this in a way that they are you know remember and appreciate it the well if it's a great idea
1: sure if you're if you're um uh, shooting with uh, just a camera on a tripod no trackers talk about that in a sec but Ooh, okay. just a camera on a tripod like you might shoot for the milky way it's kind of the same equipment um you want you don't really need a super wide angle lens but if you want to sort of capture it in context with the rest of the sky and a little landscape below, although it's gonna get up pretty high in the next couple of weeks. So it's gonna to be tough to capture it in the landscape below. But, oh, uh, you I know, see. a reasonably wide angle lens, fast lens, and just like you would do with the Milky Way is 20, 30, 40 second exposure at f/2, fairly wide open and uh, frame to the south. Uh, it's it's, it's kind of to the right or to the west of Orion, uh, moving up through Eridanus into past orion and up into taurus so it's moving north each night it's a little further north each night and but a wide angle view aiming to the south about nine ten o'clock you'll pick up this green spot um um, but if you want to zoom in and get a a closer view or closer image with a telephoto lens that's when you sort of have to kind of put the camera on a tracker which some people may have the little tracking device that you or line and it follows the sky right and then now you can get shots uh, longer a minute or two minute exposure and uh, want a tracker and maybe a telephoto lens shot and really uh, zoom in on the field and, and the comet will show up a lot better um, and so that if you want to get a real kind of in your face close up <laughs> a, a tracker device or, or a telescope on a mount like you're using uh, I got that uh, next star. before yeah that that would work, yeah.
0: Well, this is something that, guys... With the Milky Way core gone, and we have only cool Milky Way side, the lesser Milky Way side, if you want to call it that, but it's not. It's just the other awesome side of the Milky Way visible in the night sky, and the winter season, this is a cool opportunity, and apparently, possibly one of the only opportunities of a good comet this year in the Northern Hemisphere, so get out there and find some time to look what direction, I mean, if you're saying it's up in Orion eventually, so it's going to be on the east, for those of the Northern Hemisphere we are looking toward, the east to see this guy
1: um uh, yeah in the early evening it'd be towards the east or southeast okay. uh about 10 o'clock last night when i was shooting my shot last night it was about uh it was almost due south or getting into the, uh, the southwest um your best bet is i actually have a blog on my on my blog site amazingsky.net uh it's, it's linked to off my website um okay. from well, in fact it's the current it's the current blog until i put a new one up uh that has a little star chart uh there you can download and and shows you the path of the comet from night to night. Uh, but there's other places, uh, the astronomy magazines, places like that, uh, all have those star charts you can download that will tell you. Or if you're using um, uh, planetarium software in your Milky Way planning, like Starry Night, software like that, depending on the version of software, many of those programs will display comets. You can tell it to put display the comets, and they will go out and get the latest comet orbits and display... Display the latest comets, and uh, you can search for Wirtanen in, in, in its field, and 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 then show, and it'll show you. And you can step through time, and and those those planetarium programs will show you where the comet is as well. And and you can even plan how to frame your shot uh, with particular lenses and the like as well.
0: Yeah, that's awesome advice. Especially Stellarium.org has their free. Uh, They're free on your desktop. It is free on your phone or mobile device. It has an app purchase. But if you use it on your desktop, you download it, that that app right there will show you the night sky. And you can follow where the comet will be. So before you go out, check there. See exactly the star constellations that are nearby so that you can guide yourself to it. That's probably the toughest part about finding a comet like this. Other than just doing a wide-angle shot, capturing it, and look for the green you know when it will be brightest in the night sky, potentially, when its magnitude's the greatest?
1: Yeah, it will be brightest around December 15th when it's closest to the Earth. And that's also uh, that night and the next night is when it's closest to the Pleiades star cluster. So perfect, uh, a yeah. telephoto lens or a 50 mil lens or an 85 mil lens, something like that, will frame that whole area of the sky very, very nicely uh to uh, to capture it at that time I mean that'll be up high enough that you you'd be you know well you could do a, a very wide angle shot and get a landscape below as well. but if you wanted to zoom in on just that part of the sky you're talking about a, a short telephoto lens and then probably on a tracker uh, to prevent the stars from trailing in order that you can you can do a minute or two minute exposure and keep everything from uh, from not trailing and that would work really well um, so that's that's in a couple of weeks' time.
0: Oh, that's really neat. That's a great thing to put on your calendar, the 15th or 16th. Get out there and see it near the Pleiades, and you can also see it at its brightest. It's just passing by. I know we're nerding out about comets right now, but it had to because how often do we get a chance to talk about comets on Photog Adventures? And this comet we're tending is going to be our first opportunity for quite a while. And so get out there, experience it. Now, Alan, back to you, you and your yeah. photography. You've done Milky Way photography. You teach Milky Way photography. You have an ebook on Milky Way photography. I'm going to ask you a couple questions about your personal process of Milky Way photography, and let's yeah. start off in the area—not in technical side, but just in the side of building a composition. When you're going out to capture a Milky Way, what are the things you are looking for?
1: Well, uh, it's—I guess like anybody else—you're looking for a great foreground and the usual sort of composition rules and this is something i'm i'm still having a tough time working on because it's dark it's night it's hard <laughs> to see things even though it's a where you're standing and how things are being composed oh, um, man, no kidding. and uh but you know the usual uh, interesting foreground leading off into the milky way uh or a river or something flowing off into the milky way uh something like that um and so you've got to have uh, a, a nice foreground i, mm, I I, I tend to sometimes have the landscapes as too distant and, uh, and too flat in the sense of just this sort of distance scene and then Milky Way above it. And I'm, I'm trying to work on, uh, you know, getting more interesting foregrounds closer to you, sort of leading off into the distance, uh, the leading lines and that sort of thing. I still, I certainly try to work on the, you know, something like a rule of thirds composition where something isn't necessarily dead center, but off to one side and, and, uh, looking for interesting uh settings like that uh where the this is the rules of composition apply at night as they do during the daytime it's just harder to see things at night (laughs) uh to get things composed and to move around and uh and uh, to get your scenes um especially when you're
0: trying to get away from all the light pollution and get out of certain areas you end up driving away from compositions that would have been fantastic
1: yeah, and so uh, we we tend to fuss a lot in in this field about technical things, and and, <laughs> and rightly so. Uh, it's got to be technically right, focused and and exposed right, and and those are rare, unique challenges at night compared to the daytime photographers uh, and lighting uh, and, and whatnot. But it's it's that composition that makes the final difference between a, an okay picture and a great picture, and that's something I I have to work on as well and you're constantly trying to work on. Uh, you you it, it is, uh, it's, it's easy to get the technical stuff right once you get familiar with it. It's the composition that takes a little more physical work out in the field, finding the right spot. <laughs>
0: do you, and in your local area, do you have a favorite place that you like to go to get away from the light pollution and do Milky Way <sighs> photography?
1: Um uh, well, close to home here, plus spot where I, I typically go, if I, it looks like it's going to be a decent night and I, I just want to have a quick pop out, uh, an hour's drive, uh, and then be back the same night is Dinosaur Provincial Park. It's just east of me. And these are these hoodoos in eroded formations and, uh, in the Red Deer River Valley. And, uh, you can get some, uh, great spots, uh, and compositions there that, that are unique, certainly, uh, quintessentially Albertan, uh, for this area as well, and so that's a spot I like to go to. But uh, uh, another spot I, I try to get to a couple of times a year. It's a little farther for me. Is uh, Writing on Stone Provincial Park. Um, writing, on stone, like writing on Stone, like Riding on Stone. Yeah, writing. it's okay. Yeah, it's um, it's the it's the the greatest collection of. Of petroglyphs, in other words, carved stone, sandstones. So uh, the, the native people, Blackfoot, People, it was. A, it, it is a sacred site still, and th- there's carvings in the sandstone, soft sandstone, um, recording historic events and really? and and the like that goes back uh, hundreds of years. So it's that's that's why it's called that, and um, and so it's the greatest collection of those sort of petroglyphs in the Great Plains, I think it is. And so, uh, but it's it again this eroded uh, landscape, sandstone landscape, and uh, you know, it's like a little mini Bryce Canyon kind of thing oh, cool. uh, in the milk river. And, uh, and it's right down on the Alberta, Montana border. So, so you I can like get to get a milk
0: uh, river shot with a Milky way over. It. I'm
1: I, I was just processing one yesterday in <laughs> yeah. fact for a tutorial Ooh, I'm working on. Cool. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a great spot. Uh, so I'd like to go down there. And then of course we have the Rocky mountains to the West here. Um, I teach some workshops every year in Waterton lakes, national park. Um which is a fantastic national park Uh, it's just north of the glacier it's a part of the um, uh, 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 international uh, Park uh, Glacier and Waterton Lakes uh, uh, National Parks, and uh, and then Banff and Jasper uh, here in Alberta as well. So there's uh, all kinds of uh, great scenic spots. But
0: yeah, I, you you're know, you suffering for like, boring places, aren't you?
1: Yeah, and it, it's the thing is, you go to a spot like <laughs> Banff, uh, where there's a very you know very familiar, very famous uh, locations. These days, back when I was shooting the film days, you're there on your own now you show up at a spot like you know moraine lake or lake louise there's going to be at least one if not a half a dozen other photographers there on a good night uh with you which is kind of nice in a way but sometimes yeah. <laughs> you get into conflicts where someone's tossing lights yeah. around and that kind oh, of thing so that's uh that's one of the um, aspects of the hobby now it is much more popular <laughs> and you go to these very famous spots you're going to find other people there
0: yeah, that's the truth. And you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that people's have good have, people have good phones with good maps and they trust driving in the dark to certain places like that where they wouldn't trust it in the past. And the other thing is just that the cameras are better. There's more of us doing it and it is just packed everywhere you go. Yeah. So, going back to the writing on rock place, I'm curious real quick, that petroglyph or any of the petroglyphs are any of them aligned in a way that you could light paint them and capture a milky way
1: it's it's possible uh no because Uh. most of them are on a south facing rock face on the north bank of the river i've thought of that and it's a little tough you know um, and you can't get across to the other side of the river other than wading across the river, and so no, it's pretty tough to to uh, look south and then photograph those as well. You have yeah, to look north, that's a bummer north to see them and uh and so, yeah, so I've thought of trying to do that, but the best you could do would be the the, the northern Milky way um Cassiopeia and then you know that area uh Still in, cool star sickness, yeah, 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 so it's uh. It's it's possible, but uh, but not with the core, galactic core, yeah. I'll
0: have to talk to a buddy of mine who really is fond of all of the petroglyphs and pictographs that you can find out here in Utah, and he's been capturing them and and collecting images and images and images of all these areas, and I think all the places that I can know of, that I can know of, that I can think of, that I do know of, have... A southern-facing wall that has been carved into, and so maybe they just all are uniformly south, southern-facing for some reason.
1: I I don't know what the tradition might right. have been, uh, but uh, really yeah, venture a guess. It's it's interesting. Uh, yeah, those, think, those kind of things are interesting challenges yeah. uh, that we have to kind of frame something like oh, that. Oh, man.
0: Speaking yeah. of interesting challenges, I'm glad you bring it up because this is a question that I've had on my mind ever since I heard that you were in Alberta you are in an area of the world that you spend most of the summer with the Milky Way core below the horizon, or you're not getting astro twilight low enough to actually get to full darkness, where you could see the Milky Way core. Uh, do you have a full darkness period your whole year, or are you? Ju- I mean, are you just south enough that you get a full darkness period, or are you in one of those areas that sticks with astro twilight as the deepest, darkest it gets for a few weeks?
1: Yeah, no, during the about three weeks either side of solstice, uh, it's never astronomically dark here, this latitude 51 degrees, I mean the border is 49 degrees here in Western Canada, uh, 49th parallel, and so we have the, uh, you know, astronomical twilight as it's as it's called uh, the all dark night long gets. Where <laughs> looking to the north you you see uh the sky lit up um and the sky is never really dark um the milky way core is above the horizon we are we we do we don't see the very bottom end of scorpius uh, the tail of scorpius oh that's too bad uh it dips below the horizon but uh we do get the the galactic core above it but it's low uh at this latitude um but but in in sort of if we have a new moon in uh, the end of June, it's not going to do us much good in terms of dark skies because the sky won't be dark. But, you can you can still get some really nice twilight shots, deep blue skies, the Milky Way set in the deep blue sky. But there's other there's other um, trade offs. There's other um, uh, things that fill in for the lack of the dark skies. We get knocked loose in clouds in the summertime here, which are, are their own unique kind of sights. Looking to the north uh, at, at prime prime season for them is late June into July, uh, which you, you won't get from further south. And, of course, we get the Northern Lights and the Aurora Borealis any time of the year, yeah, but we can also trade-off. get them around June Solstice time as well. And in Twilight Sky, uh, I've seen some of the best displays uh, around Solstice Ooh. time. And so uh, we can get the Northern Lights uh, here at any time of the year. Uh, but uh, So around Solstice in June, we get some beautiful other... Other kinds of sky effects and astronomical and atmospheric phenomena going on, which kind of makes up for the fact that we're not getting a really dark sky at that time. Not until a new moon in late July is really the first opportunity we have to get a nice dark sky.
0: Yeah, you know, you're right. Every time I think about the Milky Way core not being visible for a group of people in the north, they remind me about the aurora. And then I just sit back and think, okay, yeah, you're fine. You're totally fine. That's not something that you're missing out on too much and I never get to see the Aurora. Very, very rarely does it have any of the pink high Aurora low on the horizon visible after a KP eight or something crazy. So we're very fortunate to have the Milky Way core, yes, but we hardly, if ever, see that Aurora. Well, this has been really fun nerding out about the Comet We're Milky Way photography in the north, and talking about working with challenges of Milky Way photography. Alan, thanks for joining me so far. Let's go ahead and take our first break of the podcast and we'll come right back and talk with Alan Dyer some more about his personal experiences out there as a photographer. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast, everyone. Today, we're hanging out with Alan Dyer, a man who shares the Milky Way history of Royce Bear, of being able to have attempted astrophotography in the days of film going into the digital era. So Thay, welcome back Alan, thanks for joining me today. you welcome. So Alan, I like to ask this question of everyone we interview and we phrase it this way because imagine if you're out there and you're camping doing Milky Way photography and you come across a group of photographers who are all sitting around a fire. We're hanging out, we're excited to share our war stories with each other and the time comes to you and you're going to tell that story, that photography story, that adventure, that experience, what would be the story that comes to mind first?
1: Well, the the night that kind of stands out for me uh, that I I kind of sometimes tell in just that kind of situation is uh, there's a very favorite spot in Jasper National Park in in, uh, central Alberta uh, north of me. It's a a dark sky preserve. It's a very favorite spot for people to go for uh, nightscape photography and astronomy and stargazing. And uh, there's a particular spot called Pyramid Lake. Uh, not far from uh, the town site and 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 a spot called Pyramid Island it's a little island out in the lake but you can walk out to it on a little causeway on a little uh wooden walkway but you're nevertheless you're on this sort of isolated island uh with this one way back to the car in the parking lot and I'm out there, and there's a—it's a great spot because you can shoot this way, that way, and 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 shoot all around. Uh, it's a very small island, and, and uh, great views over the water, the Milky Way to the south, the Northern Lights to the north, uh, <laughs> pyramid mountains to the to the west. And I was out there on my own. You know, it's the middle of the night and uh shooting away and uh happy a second all of a sudden the <laughs> wolves start howling oh you know across the <laughs> lake there's uh, the pyramid lake wolf pack and uh, it's the first time i've sort of encountered not <laughs> close up but oh, encountered man. wolves um were, were in my shoots where they're howling across the lake now they're across the lake you know and and nevertheless you're thinking wait a minute I'm on an island, and there's only one way between me and the car.
0: <laughs> and I'm
1: suddenly thinking, oh, okay, I think I'll finish up my photography now and, <laughs> and go back to the car. And uh, you know, but it, you know, it's spine dangling, isn't it? You know, yeah, when you it get is. something like that.
0: It's been nerve wracking to hear coyotes, the ones that never attack humans, let alone wolves. Now, wolf howling. Did it sound close? Did it uh, sound well, loud? Getting-
1: yeah, it did sound kind of close because it's just <laughs> across the lake and over the water, so it carries. And uh, oh, uh, gosh, I wish I, I wish at that time I was shooting with the camera that could do good video or whatever, and I could capture the audio uh, <laughs> for the night um, as well. You know, and and when you're in the mountains as well, there's always the chance of uh, you know bear encounters at oh, night boy, yeah. uh, as well. Uh, you know, not only because in the daytime, but at night even a little more uh, a little more nerve wracking. Where you can't see what's lurking around in the woods, especially when you hike off to a little distance here and um, and but that, that hasn't happened to me. But you're always a little leery of it, <laughs> uh, walking through the dark woods down the down the hiking trail uh, uh, to your spot and uh, flashing the light around as to what's there lurking in the woods there, and you don't want to surprise something. And yeah, exactly. uh, but that hasn't happened to me. But you know it 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 it, it could. So it's always a concern in the mountains. Um, out in the badlands and everything out in the plains, that's uh, not a concern. Uh, it's more uh, other photographers perhaps that might be the, <laughs> might be the issue.
0: <laughs> How alone were you? Just completely by yourself in that situation? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, and often that's kind of what I prefer, Um Uh, But although it's nice to have a colleague or companion or whatever (laughs) that shares your interest, uh, but as I said in, in, in in the first part is that sometimes you find yourself at spots and you are conflicting. Uh, because someone wants to do light painting and I don't, I don't tend to like doing light painting, and uh, and uh, and and someone wants to do that, or there's a group there and they're all waving flashlights around, and uh, I just find that even people that aren't doing light painting, there's often just too much light being flashed around. He said, "Well, you know, what are you taking pictures of? That <laughs> you've got all these white lights uh, um, flashing around all the time." And uh, and that's okay. kind of the downside where, you know, and if you're doing a time lapse, that's an issue because it's going to ruin some frames in a time lapse. All right. And so uh, single single issue nightscapes, single frame nightscapes or or whatever stills rather um, you can just kind of wait till they're done or or whatever, or edit out the, the bad frames. But in a time lapse, uh, it's it's going to ruin a sequence like that. And so uh, I, I, this one thing I have a page in my e about is nightscapes etiquette. And Mm -hmm. I think this is something we haven't really addressed as a a group or as a hobby, uh, as a community, is the etiquette of, of being at sites, arriving at sites, um we have this as amateur astronomers at star parties where it's red lights only and, you know, no white lights, please. And we have this sort of etiquette amongst amateur astronomers at star parties. This is the proper ways to behave. So you're not going to spoil other people's views uh, or photographs. But uh, for the nightscape stuff, I think that's another issue that we, we need to address is what is the etiquette? If you arrive at a site, you're not flashing lights around because someone else is already there and they're already taking pictures and a
0: time-lapse, perhaps. And typically at night, you don't know they're already there unless you saw their car. And so your situation is you go out there and you're flashing light all over the place, arriving at that awesome natural bridge, and you think that you're alone and still shining light on it to get your focus or shining light on it to just see it. And there's four or five, six guys just behind you over on the left side that you have no idea about that have been there for over an hour, and they're thinking, come on, guys, turn off your light. Yeah, Turn off yeah. your light. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I think it's, you know, a situation like that, if you see someone coming in, you should sort of announce yourself that, you know, hi I am here. I'm doing a time lapse, whatever. And so someone who's the new arrival knows there's other people there. Yes. Or if you're arriving yourself, uh, you you kind of shout out, is anybody else, here? you know, if, well, if you might be able to see that there's a car park there or whatever, you might be able to tell there's other people there. But you're right. You can get a, get to a spot and arrive. And you think you got it to yourself, but no, <laughs> there's someone else, uh, <laughs> you know, somewhere else there uh, nearby. And uh, it's nice to let people know that you're there or that uh, you know that there's other people there. So, you know, you, you, you don't conflict and you get, all get your
0: shots and, uh, and go away happy. agree. I think everyone out there, you guys should think of this as it's on you if you're there first. They're not going to find you necessarily or see you, especially with their eyes still adjusting. And so announce yourself. Let them know you're there. If you don't want to be mad at them messing up your time lapse, messing up your shot, then make sure that you announce yourself that you're there. Hey, hey, guys, how's it going? We're here. We got some low-level lighting going on right now. You guys are free to use this. Have you done yep. Milky Way photography before? Let yourselves be known, help and teach and share. But if you stand there thinking that they're going to notice you eventually, they're probably not, at least not as fast as you're hoping to. So make yep. sure that you guys do announce that you're over here. Hey guys, we're over here behind these trees and we're also taking care, you know, you know taking the shot, especially with a Milky Way foreground that is very iconic. You're not going to be alone. You're going to have yeah. people find you, and so I yeah. like that. Any other points of etiquette that we should think well, about to pass um, on?
1: I mean, it's 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 just standard issue amongst amateur astronomers, but not so much against the nightscape photographers. Is is the red lights, you know, the the redhead lamps, and not not using the bright white LED lights um, for setting your cameras and even even walking down the trail or whatever, is most of these headlamps have a red light mode. As you yes. should have those where you can go to white light if you really have to, uh, like you're searching for the bears. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, the red lights um, uh, and keeping them down at the ground uh, as you're uh, getting uh, yes. you know, on site, getting on a trail, uh, arriving, setting your camera is using the red lights and keeping them aimed down to the ground or to your camera, not waving them around. Um, and, uh, and so the use of the, the red headlamps uh, are, I think is, again, another point of etiquette that people should use.
0: Absolutely. 100% agree on that one as well. There are people out there who tend to look at the back of their camera with their headlamp and then their headlamp is just spraying everywhere. Yeah, you Turn yourself around if you're going to look at some setting on the back of your headlamp. If you're worried about your composition not changing, then just do it all in the dark. I prefer myself just having all lights off. My eyes are adjusted. I can do everything I need to, and I can even walk around safely. Not everyone has the luxury of being in their thirties and not afraid of spraining their ankle or tearing up their knee really badly. So you do want some light. Just make sure that you're aware of where you're spraying that light. Turn your back to the subject, turn your back to the group, and then shine your light the other direction because they don't care if back there gets lit up. They do care if they're eyes are being messed up from being adjusted, but just uh, make sure you're aware of where you're pointing your light, especially when you're just doing it for a few seconds. Sometimes you still go all over someone's composition.
1: Yeah, it takes it takes very very little as as I often do my own shots as I you know get back to a camera that's doing a time lapse and <laughs> yeah. uh, of course I've got to use the red light to find it. Sometimes you suddenly lose the camera and you right. start waving things around or you think you're pointing the red light down, but you get the shots back and you realize oh, I, you know I screwed up a couple of <laughs> frames with the red right. lights, and I I ruined my own frames. <laughs> it uh, it takes very very little. I don't know that's what we're talking about at the beginning. These cameras are so sensitive now that it doesn't take much. Um, And the time lapses, yeah, it really messes up frames.
0: Right. And I have a friend who famously told me the story of when he set up a time-lapse, he got all excited about it, and then he kind of got bored as he was sitting there thinking, okay, well, the time-lapse is running. What am I going to do? And he starts walking around with his light. And he ends up walking into his frame throughout his whole composition for the next hour, paying no attention to the fact that he's completely ruining his own time-lapse. He just completely spaced it. And so that definitely happens. As far as other etiquette Points? Can you think of anything? Because I'm liking this. No, topic. no.
1: Those, those are the main things I think. Uh, is um, again, uh, the, the 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 night is 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 a time for sort of. Quietness, perhaps as well, and you know, again, <laughs> the same sort of thing applies at star parties where there's usually rules against people blasting out music and whatnot. Um, you know, fair. you want to kind of preserve the sanctity of the night. That's why we're there. We want to enjoy the night and, uh, and and enjoy the night sounds and that thing. So, if you want to sit there and, as you say, listen to you know, uh, entertain yourself for the hour, two hours, three hours, you're doing a time lapse <laughs> or whatever, is uh, use the headphones and and whatnot. But uh, but it's nice to hear the night sounds. Especially when there's things creeping around.
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: Um, Sometimes so, that anyway, freaks yeah, me the out. Anyway, yeah, etiquette I think <laughs> is uh, is something that um, people need to be a little more aware of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Um, Also, going back to some of the safety stuff, guys, only time you want your loud music really is if you're walking around. He mentioned it. You don't want to startle or surprise anything out there. And if the animal hears you coming and they hear the noise they want to get away from, that's a lot better scenario than if you just turn the corner on your bicycle really fast and you startle a bear. People have died because of that. And so you just got to make sure you're making the noise that you need to when you travel. And when you're sitting there... Just enjoy the peace. You are more safe than you probably ever have been. And so don't worry about all those little creepy crawling noises. So, Alan, you have in your ebook specifically took out, or I should say, have featured time lapses. You said, Okay, how to make nightscapes and time lapses. Right. A lot of us are getting into time lapses, and some of us are doing them already, having fun with it. What is your process for a time-lapse, and what kind of gear do you have that you find are essential for time-lapses?
1: Well, you can do great time-lapses with just the equipment you already have if you're doing any kind of nightscape photography. photography. Uh, camera, lens, fast lens, especially Milky Way, you need the fast lens. So it's the, it's the same thing. If you can get a good still frame, uh, single frame uh, still image of the Milky Way or Milky Way nightscape, scape uh, you can do several hundred and get a time-lapse. Um, you just need to have the intervalometer. Some cameras have that built in. Uh, others, you you add a separate external intervalometer to just keep firing the camera. Uh, once an exposure is finished, uh, the usual question is, what's the interval? Should be what? What should it be? And the answer is as short as possible, like one second between frames, so that you're constantly shooting pictures. As soon as one finishes, the shutter fires again, starts another. Typically for Milky Way, it's going to be 30, 40 second exposures Um, and uh, and you're just uh, allowing the Milky Way to move across the frame. The the additional uh, challenge with composition, as we talked about in part one, is now <laughs> right. you have to think about where is the Milky Way now, but where is it going to be two Ooh, or three right. hours from now? And Ooh. that's where the Stellarium or Starry Night or whatever, or even the apps like PhotoPills and, and, and Photographers Ephemeris can help you plan that. And, and even these augmented reality apps like PhotoPills and photo, uh, Photographers Ephemeris have these, you know, where you can stand at the spot, where you yes. want to be uh, by day, know you want to be. And you can see, pre-visualize where the Milky Way is going to be that night. Those are fantastic. <laughs> and so you need to, you know, plan how it's going to move and uh, how therefore how you're going to frame things. Um, but essentially, once you've got 300, typically is what you need, uh, 300 shots, you just develop all of those as you would a single image And if they're all kind of at the same exposure, same lighting, you just need to develop one of those images. Whether it's Lightroom, or I typically use Adobe Camera Raw um, for my developing and and not Lightroom, but they do the same thing. They're they're essentially the same thing. And then develop one image and then copy those settings to all the other hundreds of images in that folder, in that shoot, and uh, develop them all the same. So it's very easy to develop uh, hundreds of images And then for time lapse, you've got to export those out as as JPEGs, uh, typically to then assemble them into a movie. And uh, that's the that's the unique step that uh, that still images do not have, is (laughs) that um, you've got to develop this, export them out as typically JPEGs of some size, maybe a reduced size, um, and then assemble that into a movie. Uh, there's various lots. Of, almost everybody does it differently. Uh, the movie assembly, but uh, a program I I really like and use now a lot is called TLDF Time Lapse Deflicker is is uh, is, uh, is what it's oh, called. It's okay. available in the the Mac and the Windows app stores. It's a little I don't know, $30, 40 program, you throw the JPEGs at this program, uh, and it will assemble the movie for you, but give you the option of de-flickering and give you the option of actually smoothing and frame blending, which is something you have a tough time doing with other software, perhaps. Absolutely. So it, can, it can frame blend and smooth the images together, Um which can be very uh, nice effect, particularly for auroras that 's where I usually use it because it really blends one frame into the other and makes for a much more smoother time lapse for things like the auroras, but it can even help for milky way's uh shots as well so that 's the program I often use now for assembly of the frames into a final movie that you then then it then exports into whatever size you
0: want i've I've done it up to six k uh 4K wow, awesome. size movies uh works very very well. Well let's talk let's talk a little bit more about TLDF because that's a new program that I have not heard of and not have re- had recommended to me before. So let me ask you some of the questions I have. First off with the smoothing that you're talking about the aurora, are we talking when you have a, a gap between time and you're smoothing that time together or are you talking about a perfectly con uh perfectly sequential image adding an extra smoothing on top of the perfect sequence.
1: Yeah, the latter is that even for auroras, you want as minimum time between shots as possible because the aurora is always moving. So, as soon as that shutter is closed, it opens again a second right. later. Um, and uh, so the time lapses are taken as, as in rapid succession as possible. And for bright auroras, the exposure still might be quite short, only two or three or five seconds, perhaps, if it's a particularly bright aurora. Um, but even so, okay. uh, putting those together into a movie can still make for kind of a a jerky um, motion and if you can frame blend them so that one frame and and with TLDF you can adjust the frame blending from anywhere from one frame up to seven frames uh, I think it is where it can it can kind of average them together and smooth things out and it just makes and and then you can also render it out at at a slower frame rate typically nice. we'd render movies out at 24 30 frames a second that's what we normally use for something like the milky way but for the auroras if you can frame blend and then render it out at only even five or 10 frames a second but frame blended it makes for a smoother more cinematic Uh, kind of appearance, too, uh, and captures it more the way your eye uh, saw it. So I really like it for that. In fact, I've suggested to the developers, "Is boy, give me some more choices of frame rates, Mm because for Aurora, sometimes even five frames a second frame blended looks really good. Uh, but we wouldn't normally sh- render Milky Way stuff out with that slower frame rate; it would look too jerky. But um, but for auroras, it can work really well. well so uh, anyway, that's uh, that's a program I can suggest. And yes, it's it's it's. Not well known, and, and people use tend to use movie editing software to assemble their movies, and eh, it can kind of work. But uh, I often I see people just doing much more work than they need to to get these movies put together. Um, and there's dedicated software that will assemble it and uh, and 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 give you effects that you couldn't otherwise achieve as well.
0: Well, that's awesome. I mean, already for the Aurora smoothing idea, it already has a great value for its money. You said it's. It is only about forty dollars, huh? Oh, I
1: forget. Yeah. I'm gonna pull yeah, it up right now on... on my
0: app store and see what it is. Oh, it's only thirty dollars. Yeah, only there thirty dollars right now. So that is something very inexpensive. Now I recommend I I use Adobe Premiere because I have Adobe Premiere and it's very easy for me to bring in that and have the movie. It's like almost instant. But most people don't have the Adobe Creative Cloud to the point where they're paying for Adobe Premiere. And so this is a great option for you Mac users. You mentioned even in the Windows App Store it's available there. You've noticed yeah, it Yeah, I
1: believe it is. I don't know if the features are exactly the same. You can go to his website. I mean, there he has the website for it. Okay. Uh, I think it's com. I, I can't remember now. Okay.
0: Anyway. Well, um, we'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, Alan, so no worries yeah, there. I'll find yeah. it and I'll give you guys links to both. both. Both the Mac version and the app, and the uh, Windows version. What were you about to say there, Alan? Oh,
1: I was going to say, yeah, you're right. Um, Most people aren't going to have Premiere, uh, perhaps because they don't subscribe to the full uh, Creative Suite um, uh, package. Uh, But even if you've just got Photoshop, even if you just got an older version of Photoshop, right? uh, They should have CS6 or whatever. There's a video editing. I probably a lot of what you do in Premiere you can actually do in Photoshop. It's got a video editing function in it that's been there for quite a while. You bring it up with the timeline window. And what I've seen you do is you can do the same thing with Photoshop. Point it at a folder of JPEGs, tell it to open the sequence of images, and it will string it automatically together into a movie on the timeline at a frame rate you decide. And 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 Photoshop will do that. And then you can render out the movie from Photoshop. Wow. You can yeah. also once it's in Photoshop and is sitting there in a timeline, you can actually turn that video file into a smart object, apply smart filters to it. You can put masks on that and apply adjustment layers to that video file, um, and you can uh, even subtract a dark frame from that, from that movie <laughs> file at that okay. point. And really then you nice. can do a lot of the processing to the movie Uh, In the same way that you would do to a still image using the same same functions and then render out the movie from Photoshop. So it's a it's a it's a it's another alternative that a lot of people aren't aware of because they don't realize Photoshop has movie capabilities.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have used the Animate before, but man, I have not paid attention to whether or not I can import it the same, with the same ease as I can in Premiere and give it to someone who is a little hesitant to use Photoshop and have it be very accessible. But it sounds really accessible, Alan. That's great advice. I'm going to look into that further and try and put some information out there about it. That's awesome. Yeah, you
1: can, you can open up and point it to a folder, JPEGs, and just as I've seen you in one of your tutorials, we just point to the first image in the sequence in in the folder and then you you have their little checkbox that you have to reveal with the mac version and say options exactly and then say open image sequence becomes available to you You can check that and now it it strings all the frames together and the next dialogue box that comes up says what frame rate do you want and then it puts creates the movie in in a second and then or at least puts it on the timeline then you render it out as a quick time mover
0: wow. Well, I'm absolutely blown away and flattered that you meant me specifically when you said that. I thought at first you meant the royal you, as in you will look for it and find it this way. You actually meant one of my tutorials. You've actually seen something that I put out there on YouTube. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Thanks, Alan. You're welcome.
1: <laughs>
0: I had no idea. I'm blown away right now. <laughs> so then with the D Flicker side, I haven't asked you about that side. Have you had a chance to use it? I know that whenever I mess with a set, where I'm automatically changing throughout my time-lapse, I get flickering. Whenever I have a consistent manual set setting and not enough changes in the scenery, even if it changes dynamic going too bright or too dark, I can keep a nice flicker free time lapse. Now when I have had an auto setting that was adjusting either ISO or adjusting aperture based on whatever I chose that day and did a time lapse like in up in Grand Teton, I had some flickering. Now, have you used the flickering option on there? Does this really de-flicker it with ease?
1: Um, uh, I it, it will certainly help but um, I'll I'll tell you the the, the software to, if you really want you really want to work on a time lapse sequence and de-flicker it very very accurately uh, is uh, is uh, LR time lapse I knew you were going to say that you- Yep. Yeah, you you may know about, it and, re- and and listeners may know about. It's it's uh, an advanced program, but it's boy, it's the best for taking a more complex time lapse, where as you say, the settings are constantly changing uh, throughout the sequence as the camera shifts its settings, and that will introduce flickering or jumps, just stair step jumps in the in uh, the brightness when yeah. it's when it you know switches to a higher ISO. Or, or, or the shutter speed changes. And LR time-lapse will, will take that and smooth all that out um, beautifully. And uh, I, in the ebook, I've got several tutorials on how to, how to use LR time-lapse uh, for a simple sequence, for a more complex sequence, what we call holy grails, uh, where <laughs> yep. you're, you're starting maybe before sunset even and going yep. right to Milky Way at darkness. And, uh, and LR time-lapse is the essential uh, and it will deflicker very, very smoothly. It's it's a little complex to use and learn to use, very. but once you get the hang of it, it it's almost all my time lapse sequences go through LR time lapse these days uh, because of its power. You just develop several keyframes and then it. It processes the rest. Uh, And then you can export the movie out of LR time-lapse, and it has a function of kind of frame blending as well built into it, uh, too. So it it can do the whole job. It's uh, it's an advanced piece of software, but, boy, if you're really getting into time-lapse, you got to have it.
0: Absolutely agree. It is something that is a little too complex for me to even be excited to get involved with it until I absolutely have to. Kurt Kyes has done a holy grail time lapse out of Crater Lake, and he used LR Time Lapse Pro to really make it beautiful and sweeten it, and it's fantastic. LR Time Lapse Pro, guys, is 100%. You should get it and learn it if you're going to be doing a ton of time lapses. I, even with all the technical stuff that I get myself involved in, still Am a little not intimidated, but just not ready to get into learning the complexities of LR Time Lapse Pro. But a fantastic and beautiful system. Yeah, and, and you
1: can you can download a trial copy that has certain limitations to it, but it you know it doesn't put a watermark. I think it's just limited to how many frames you can throw at oh, it, or, gotcha. something like that. But otherwise, it's it's pretty fully functional. And just give it a try before you spend the money on it, and uh, and try it out and see. But uh, yeah, for the occasional casual time lapse user, you may not need it, but uh, but uh for you get it, you get into it with any seriousness it's uh it's it's essential all all the pros use it uh there's nothing else quite like it there's another program called time lapse workflow which is a plugin for lightroom uh that um uh Elijah Parker puts out uh, he's he develops an intervalometer for doing holy grails called the time lapse view plus that works great for automating holy grails but he also has these uh, plugins for Lightroom that will do something uh, much of what LR time lapse will do in terms of processing holy grails, constantly shifting exposures and adjustments. But it doesn't do deflickering, um, oh and gosh. so he admits that He admits himself that that's not as uh, it's not a replacement for LR time lapse. Doesn't do everything LR time lapse will. But it's 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 cheaper. It's at about fifty bucks for it's. His plugins for Lightroom, and it works right within Lightroom as well. So you can check that out. TimelapsePlus.com, uh, I think it is. Uh, I'm not sure.
0: TimelapsePlus. Uh, that's another site that I'll look up for. The notes, and I'll make sure yeah, that they're in there, yeah. guys. You should have them. Yeah, down he makes below. some
1: great hardware, and then he makes these plugins for Lightroom as well uh, to complement the hardware for doing the processing of the these what we call the holy grail sequences of you know sort of sunset to Milky Way
0: shots. And that's something that I haven't accomplished yet in my career, and I'm excited to do that someday. And I just need to have the camera battery power. That's the big hold up so far is just having the battery power and the bulb ramping that I want to do. So, Alan, you mentioned. <coughs> (coughs) it a little bit ago and so i want to bring it back up again and i want to take the rest of the time that we have to talk about the offerings of alan dyer there's a lot of ways that you can learn everybody from alan dyer and i want to talk about them right now can you give us a quick little spiel on your two ebooks that you have out right now and you mentioned in passing that there's an ebook you're working on right now
1: um, yeah, I, I've got an, uh, an e-book out uh, called How to Photograph and Process Nightscapes and Time Lapses. Uh, it's been out uh, since late 2014, but it's been revised every year. In fact, I just revised it uh, about three or four months ago, and, and I'm on always... Um, uh, you know, adding to the revisions list for the next edition. That's available out for the Apple iBook store as awesome. a single volume, interactive, built-in movies and the like. That's the most interactive version. But then, of course, it was out as a Apple only ebook for two or three years. People s- kept saying, "Well, oh, can I can I get it for you know my Android? Can I get it for Windows? Whatever." Yeah. And the only format that will really work for all the other platforms is PDF. And and, uh, you know, everybody can read. So over over the summer, uh, I, I turned the Apple version into it had to be split into two volumes. One on photography, one on processing the content is the same as the single volume Apple version but um, but it's two volumes PDF so you can download the PDFs it's uh, the links are at my website and then get the same content that you can view anybody can view a PDF with whatever device can open a PDF and uh and and view the same content they there the, any videos i uh, I embed they're they're not embedded they're links you got to go out to a vimeo site and it pushes you out to Vimeo site to view the videos, uh, little video examples of time lapses, things like that, um, that are uh, the links are embedded in there. And so there's some interactivity in that regard. But uh, anyway, I think it's some of the most thorough guides. I talk about the equipment and lots of tutorials, step by step, uh, about 50 tutorials on how to process images stills and nightscapes using the Photoshop and the Creative Suite, but I also have tutorials in there for DxO Photo Lab, uh, On1 Photo Raw, um, Affinity, uh, some of the programs that I tried and that can work and can be used uh, as, as, for this kind of photography for those that don't want to go Adobe.
0: Exactly. And you guys can find his stuff at AmazingSky.com. AmazingSky.com has all of his work. You can find his books there, his Nightscapes book, an Eclipse book, and a Backyard Astronomer's Guide if you're using a telescope. And you also offer some workshops. Do you have any coming up that you can talk about?
1: Uh, No, no, no workshops coming up. Most of the workshops I do are typically in the local area here. I haven't got into doing, you know, Workshops in Moab and things like that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, uh, you got where, the Aurora you know, up uh, there. The, the, the do... fans um, join me there. I haven't gotten into doing that. Um, uh, so most of the times they're in the sort of local area. But if someone is, is interested in, you know, and, and and as sometimes happens, bringing me in to present a workshop, um, typically often they're just classroom-only sessions, but uh, I do some uh, out under the night sky oh, occasionally as well. So most of um, them are sit
0: down, learn as in a classroom setting. And- sure. Sure, Learn sure. There's there.
1: lots. There's lots you can go at, um, uh, especially with the processing. I mean that uh, oh, I've yeah. got a, you know a half day workshop just on Photoshop, you know, and then then <laughs> we only touch enough. on you know a lot of things there. There's also some free tutorials uh, that I link to on my website, and I'm just. Working on a new one on the, you, the usual how to photograph and process the Milky Way free tutorial that'll be there as kind of, kind of a lost leader to help promote the book. Um, yeah, and, and then I'll go into some more stuff that I think most people don't get into with the YouTube tutorials. So I'm going to get into some some other advanced techniques and the like. So that'll be coming out yeah uh, in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs>
0: oh, <laughs> even a couple of Just weeks. working on that. Well, wow, that's really soon. I mean, to say it'll be out before Christmas, that's awesome. Yeah,
1: that's a, that's a video tutorial, not an ebook per se. I've got other ebooks in mind for the next couple of years, uh, but uh, um, but they'll be probably more about backyard astronomy and, and not necessarily nightscape photography.
0: Well, that's awesome. There's a lot out there to learn, guys, from Alan Dyer. Alan, thank you for joining us today. I've had a blast hanging with you on the podcast. You're yeah, very
1: welcome. You guys, it was great.
0: I hope that you will get out there, everybody, and check out the Comet Wirtanen. This is your chance. You have Wirtanen from here until the 15th and 16th. If you haven't already put it on your calendar, the 15th through 16th is the Pleiades Cluster moment, where it's right there near the Pleiades Cluster, and it's going to look really cool altogether. High in the sky, nothing else in the foreground probably, but it's going to be an interesting night sky. And you can get a cool shot with a green cyan orb. So Alan, thank you so much, amazingsky.org, or amazingsky.com and amazingsky.net for his blog. You guys can find out more information there. Hope you have a good day, Alan. Thank you for hanging out with us. Thank you, Aaron. And everybody, you hope you guys have a good day, and we'll see you guys on Wednesday for the another podcast.